Hi, welcome to My Life with David Cassidy. This is your host, Carol Kaplan. This podcast is about the life and work of David Cassidy, the singer, actor, and entertainer who found success on television, in the recording industry, on Broadway, Las Vegas, and London's West End. He was the last of a kind, an artist who found overwhelming fame and adoration at the tender age of 20, following in the footsteps of Elvis and the Beatles and generating mass hysteria of young teenage girls. He sold millions of records around the world. The TV show that catapulted him to fame, The Partridge Family, is still running in syndication 50 years later. His live concerts broke records, and he was the highest paid entertainer in the world at one point in his life. Yet for all his professional successes, he never got the recognition he seemed to crave from his entertainment world colleagues. There were few awards, no Tony, no Emmy, no Grammy, and when he died in November 2017, he did get lots of tweets. And the thought was certainly nice, but fans around the world, and there are still lots of them, were left stunned at the lack of any official sort of validation for the decades of contributions he had made to the entertainment world. How could someone who once had the biggest fan club in recorded history, bigger than Elvis or the Beatles, just pass away with no major magazine retrospectives, no incisive movie about the dramatic highs and lows of his life, no serious books? How could he just be allowed to fade away? David Cassidy sure meant a lot to me. I was nine when I discovered him on television and fought for control over my family's only TV set on Friday nights. Like so many other little girls and teenagers, I was sure I was in love with David Cassidy. But after his show went off the air in 1974, I and so many others simply lost track of him. Life went on, and it wasn't until he hit the news again with a series of drunk driving arrests around 2014 or so that I heard anything about him. And when I saw the mug shots, I couldn't understand what had happened to him. The beautiful, stunningly gorgeous young man we all dreamed about looked like he had hit rock bottom. And when his death was announced in 2017, it hit me like a brick. Why would the death of an entertainer whom I hadn't seen perform in over 40 years hit me so hard? Well, it occurred to me that if he had gotten old, I must have too. And suddenly his death made me aware of my own mortality. I waited a couple of weeks for the TV specials or magazine covers I was waiting for and couldn't understand why they didn't appear. The only thing anyone was writing about or talking about was the battle with alcoholism that led to his death. But surely David Cassidy's life counted for a lot more than that. So as a former journalist, I was a television anchorwoman for 20 years, I did what I had to do. I wrote an article about the impact David Cassidy had on me and how I suspected that thousands or maybe even millions of women around the world were feeling the same way as I did. It was published in the Huffington Post. And for me, 
that's when it all began. Apparently, the article really hit a nerve and went viral through social media. I started receiving messages from fans, including one from one of David's former wives who thanked me. And the grief from all of them was palpable. Many fans started joining Facebook fan pages devoted to David. And there was so much speculation about his life and so few answers. Almost no one really close to David was willing to talk about him. So again, I decided to do what I had to do. I got a microphone, plugged it into my laptop, and started contacting people who knew David. If the mainstream media wasn't going to do it, I would. I would gather the facts, answer the questions, and give David's fans at least some of the closure they needed. So that's what this podcast is all about. Now, I intended to begin with a different guest, but due to recent events, I decided to start with someone who knew David very well, almost from the very start of his fame. Elliot Mintz is a Hollywood media rep who became a close friend of David's when they both lived in the Laurel Canyon section of Los Angeles. Shortly after David left the Partridge family, he and Elliot traveled to Hawaii for a two-week vacation. And it was there that Elliot conducted about 40 hours of interviews with David during this time. They were never publicly heard until Elliot released them in December 2019. I wanted to get Elliot on tape as quickly as possible to hear the story behind those tapes to give them some context. Now, Elliot is a very busy man. I call him the Forrest Gump of Hollywood because he seems to rep for all the most famous celebrities. I recommend you look him up on Wikipedia. So we talked by phone for nearly two hours recently. I hope you listen to this interview and then listen to Elliot's tapes of David on his YouTube channel. Shortly after he began um, doing the Partridge Family, uh, you can fill in that year. I'm not sure. Do you know the year that? Well, the, yes, the year that the Partridge Family went on the air was 1970. So it's so sh shortly after that, I would imagine around 1971, give or take. I'm not good with numbers. We bumped into each other. We became friends. He moved into my neighborhood where I lived at the time, a place in Los Angeles called Laurel Canyon that some of your uh, listeners may have heard of. It was the kind of the artist gathering place in L.A. You could look it up, L-A-U-R-E-L. -E and an amazing number of uh, contemporary musicians from the 1960s uh, lived there, hung out there, practiced there, partied there. Uh, it, it, it was a very small little enclave. And David moved into a house that was three doors from my house. My guess it would be that would probably have been the time that we first met, became friends. Uh, and my time with him continued through him eventually leaving Laurel Canyon, marrying, moving um, uh, 
20 miles away to the San Fernando Valley. And and I, I think that that's kind of how we be how we began. Okay, so was your, um, I know that he often spoke of Ruth Ahrens, and I'm trying to distinguish the difference between the roles that you served in his life. Well, the main role, the main relationship we had was simply friendship. Friendship. Ruth Ahrens was his manager, his personal manager who was there from the very, very beginning, uh, and uh, to the best of my knowledge, was there until she passed away. I don't have the exact year that she did, uh, but uh, she looked after David uh, with a tremendous skill. Also, at that time, he was represented by a, um, a smaller agency called the Corman Agency, which I think is C-O-R-M-A-N, and a very, very nice man named Tom Corman. So David was with Tom Corman as an agent. He would later go from Tom Corman to the William Morris Agency, and he would always have Ruth Ahrens as a manager. So those were the people who handled the career. For a very brief period of time, I did his media, his publicity. He consulted with me as a media consultant. Media consultants don't have anything to do with the money. We don't book the shows. We don't sign contracts. We don't negotiate deals. We only deal with the public image stuff. And again, that didn't come till, you know, uh, later on in the odyssey of me meeting him. Most of the time that I spent with David was simply under the umbrella of friendship. Okay, well, that's interesting to know because I had the impression that there was a more formal business relationship. Um, but I, I know that you went to tour with him and that you recorded um, some of the touring that he did uh, through uh, through Europe, I believe. Um, yeah, I can explain that. Yeah. Um, during the time that we both lived in Laurel Canyon, became friends, uh, David was doing what everybody knows David was doing, and I was uh, a host on radio and television. I did talk shows. So I did a radio talk show on a, a station called KABC, and I was also the eyewitness news correspondent for the entertainment sections of Eyewitness News Channel 7 in Los Angeles. Eyewitness News is in most cities across the country locally. You can turn on your own version. And I did that in LA. So I would do the radio show, then I'd drive across town and do the television spot, interviewing people. I wound up doing more than 2,000 interviews in my interviewing career. I was a broadcaster. When I got tired of radio and TV, I became a media consultant, which is like a publicist. So David is uh, involved in his music activities. 
I'm the guy on the radio and TV. We meet. Uh, he does a couple of uh, interviews with me. He did one for Eyewitness News. It's on my website. It's on my YouTube channel. You can see a snippet of it. I think we did two radio interviews. You can listen to both of them by going to the Elliot Mintz official YouTube channel. You'd hear David and I on the radio talking. And there, there was a time around there that um, I was leaving one radio station going to another, I believe. He was going to go to um, Manchester and London, England on tour. And he asked if um, I could go with him. I said, I'd love to. And I told him I'd like to take my little handheld tape recorder and tape some of the sounds along the way that I would try and, you know, edit and put up on the radio as a kind of sound portrait of what it was all like from David's point of view. And I did. So we went to Europe. I guess I was with him probably for a couple of weeks in this uh, city called Manchester and then on to London. And, you know, I never left his side. And I had my uh, $49 uh, Sony handheld tape recorder with a couple of microphones plugged into it and just recorded everything. So we'd be in helicopters, we'd be ordering room service, I'd be talking with his bodyguards, I'd talk to the merchandising people. Uh, I would be with him backstage and I would walk outside and try and talk with some of the fans and just keep recording the stuff and put together this little one-hour, very primitive audio documentary, which people can listen to if they go online. That's what I was doing with him in England. That's how that little mini uh, documentary came out, which aired, you know, 30 years ago or more. So, yeah, so I listened to that and it was an incredible piece of sound because it really does give you the feeling of what it was like to be behind the scenes with him at that crazy time. Um, but recently um, you have um, released uh, or will be releasing a set of interviews. Um, I believe you have 20 hours of tape. Um, tell me the circumstances of how those tapes came about? It was around, give or take, 1974. It was after David did his very famous Rolling Stone cover with Annie Leibovitz. And I'm sure David's fans are aware of the, the cover in that interview. And somewhere around there, uh, David, of course, had been... He was exhausted. He was really burnt out from all the stuff he had been doing. And he was increasingly frustrated that people were continuing to perceive him in the Keith Partridge idiom while he personally um, was writing songs and doing songs and wanted to be known as David Cassidy and wanted people to appreciate uh, his true artistry beyond uh, the television persona. So uh, he had also read a book uh, going off the 
a second, but you'll see how it helps. Mm -hmm. Rolling Stone magazine published their first issue. Jan Wenner was the publisher. And the first issue of Rolling Stone carried a cover photo of John Lennon. And inside was a, a lengthy article called Lennon Remembers. There was a kind of an angry time in John's life. It was post-Beatles when he was just getting together with Yoko. Uh, he had been tending a, uh, a program called Primal Screen Therapy conducted by a psychiatrist called Arthur Janoff. And uh, one of the tenets of this was to get things off your chest, to scream about them, to be very public about your thoughts and your feelings. People can look up Arthur Janoff, Primal Screen Therapy, understand it. So Lenin, this lengthy interview with Rolling Stone, later Jan Wenner would publish the entire interview, not just the five or ten pages that appeared in the magazine, but over a hundred pages of the transcript, uh, where, where John was, you know, very, very, very open about his unhappiness with different elements of the people life at the time, and how he wanted to assert himself in a world beyond the Beatles. That book, that article, uh, left a tremendous impression upon David. David was very influenced by the Beatles. He was fascinated by Lennon. He asked me to, uh, if it would be ever possible, uh, for me to introduce him to John, which I wound up doing. We all went out to dinner one night, um, and we talk about that, I believe, in the, in the uh, interviews that are about to be released. It was at this time that David suggested that he and I both someplace where we could take some of his recollections of the whole experience. And so this sounds like a good idea. Mm -hmm. And uh, we flew to Hawaii, I believe Maui, where he, I don't know if he owned it, I think he rented a little, and I mean a little kind of cottage-like place. This wasn't a big fancy deal. It was just a little, I think, two-bedroom wooden house uh, in Maui, not far from the beach. We went there, and what we would do, as was our habit at the time, is sleep late, get up, have some breakfast, uh, put two microphones around our neck, plug it into the tape recorder, and walk along the beach. Just walk along the shore. We found one of those beaches that were not particularly populated. There weren't lots of surfers. It wasn't, you know, like Honolulu. We would walk for hours and talk and tape. We'd then go back to this little house, uh, order dinner from some local place, probably things like pizzas and Italian food, um, maybe some wine, and we would uh, sit and talk into the night late into the night recording and when we got tired uh, we went to sleep and repeated the activity the following day and so it went we didn't do anything else in hawaii to my knowledge <laughs> i don't we went out to dinner we didn't go to a nightclub we were just there to do this and during the course of it i believe it, it moves around a lot in my head because 
I believe there are 20 cassettes, but each cassette is capable of holding four hours of material, two hours on each side, or maybe it's one hour on each side. So 20 cassettes would equal 40 hours. Whatever it was, it was a lot of tape. We finished uh, the recording, flew back to LA, and um, as the days and weeks went past, I had the materials that we recorded transcribed. So uh, I could look through it, uh, the material to see what, what could serve the purpose. Keep in mind, when you're, this wasn't a radio interview. This wasn't structured. It wasn't formal. We'd go off on a zillion tangents. There were times... Uh, transcriber was listening to it the sound of the ocean waves was louder than what David and I were talking about you couldn't hear us so we would leave the house and we would start a subject and sooner or later it sounded like we were under the water <laughs> the tapes of course are over 40 years old recorded on cassette mm -hmm. they were just all placed in a safety deposit box that was not you know, hermetically sealed, so it's very thin tape. I hadn't listened to the tapes in years. When uh, So there came a point where A&E Television, a year or two ago, did a, 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 what I felt was a really wonderful, comprehensive, and accurate documentary on David. This was something David wanted to do. He that that was uh, what we call the what what was called the last session. The documentary. Yes, correct, correct. This is where the where during the course of this two hour presentation, which people that that one is available for streaming. You have to pay for that, but if you go on the A and E channel and go to that final documentary I don't know what it is a couple of dollars you can hear it uh, and see it and I think it was a, a, a really well done piece I was one of the, the people who was asked to comment on the show there were I don't know half a dozen other people who knew David and each one of them I think they were all very very articulate to the best of my knowledge I found them all to be very accurate and they all came at uh, the subject from their point of view. And we watched David, we see David. And uh, we sadly watch his physical decline in the video. Uh, towards the end, uh, David is sick, he, he is ill. It's very difficult for him you know, to move around freely, to sing, with memory, all of that. But he wanted to finish the documentary. It was clear that he was he was sick. And I'm told that the people who were making the documentary, who put up all the money to record this for the weeks and maybe months that it took to edit, they wanted to give him the opportunity to say, let's stop here, I can't handle it anymore. He wanted to do it. The documentary ends with a recording session where he's singing some of the songs that his father 
sang and the album was going to be a homage to his dad that uh, that record uh, is available through you know all the online music services uh, you can hear david sing you can hear the record and for fans it is uh, i think it's beautiful the classic songs the songs like summertime um stuff from the cold porter era Yeah, and he does it with great grace and skill beautifully done uh, ending with a song called wish you were here during the course of the ane interview the ane people asked about that trip to hawaii i mentioned to them what i just mentioned to you and the, the documentary aired The documentary aired i think most people thought it was very well done some people thought it was sensationalized and some people felt that david should not be depicted um looking as uh, as troubled as he looked towards the end with a medical condition uh, and they protested it a relatively small group i would think it's fair to say that more than 80% uh felt that it was a very honest real portrayal and i wanted to keep in mind david wanted it done completed and aired so during the course of the conversation when they asked me about the hawaii trip i mentioned uh the things that i'm mentioning to you and going to hawaii they, they took a great interest in the tapes once the thing aired i started hearing from hundreds and hundreds of david cassidy fans on my facebook page and they all said that they wanted to hear the uh the tapes and i i understood the reason why you know these were people who followed david most of his life the people whose lives were touched by david they wanted to hear them all and uh, you know here were my options very simple i could say hey, no that's a, a gigantic task people have no idea what's involved in going through dozens and dozens of hours of tape hundreds and hundreds of pages of transcript then trying to digitalize the tape to make the tape audible to which you have to work with the sound editors to perfect it it is it, it takes forever it costs a great deal of money and um i also question whether anybody would really want to sit and listen to 20 hours of tape i at this stage in my life was not capable or interested in writing a book based upon the tapes that would have taken even longer maybe 2 years so i kind of mentioned on facebook that i'm wrestling with some way to present this material that the fans may uh, find intriguing or enjoyable or revelatory and i was going to come up with the best idea i can as the weeks and months went by i did its fans are a very vocal group of people and no matter what i was posting about on facebook they were still contacting me and saying where's the tape where are the tape we want to hear the tapes 
decided, look, I, I, I didn't have it in me to go through all of it. So I thought what I would do is first try to put together two or three hours of the material that had never been heard before. And then I thought uh, the, the A&E production people were kind enough to give me my outtakes from the actual documentary. I spoke to, you know, when you do a TV interview, they interview you for hours and then they use five or six minutes of the, what you have to say because they only have 120 minutes. So what I have presented are my outtakes, which run a little bit more than an hour, where I talk in depth about David, but just it, 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 it didn't advance the story. There are other people that needed to be heard. So the first thing that you do hear and see are the outtakes of my recollections of David in great detail. That is followed by us uh, listening to the audio tapes, excerpts of the audio tapes that we did in Hawaii. These are the ones that we're able to clean up the best in terms of digitalizing. Some, by the way, were remarkably clear. Mm -hmm. They were the ones that we recorded at the house at night without the ocean. The ocean probably wasn't my best idea acoustically. And we were dealing with a primitive tape recorder. There were no technicians with us. Certainly there was no videographer. So when people go on the, the site beginning, hopefully this Thursday night, uh, what are they gonna be looking at? Well, they're gonna be looking at a tape recorder. It's not gonna be very interesting visually. <laughs> Okay, and so... They're, and they're, they're going to be hearing us speak. Think of it as a radio show. Yes. On the internet. That's right. And you don't have to. That's so, right. you know, to try and make it a little interesting, uh, I worked with the editor and I said, well, we don't want to have a blank screen. Uh, let's record the way a tape recorder looks with a cassette in it. Admittedly, not Academy Award winning material, <laughs> but you'll see that. Um, there were a couple of photographs of David and I over the years, the earliest ones being when David attended my 30th birthday party 45 years ago, a black tie birthday party. And all the guests, I said, should rent a tuxedo. David had one, you'll see that. And some pictures of us from Hawaii and some pictures of us from around the journey. Um, yes, you'll see some visuals of the coast of Hawaii. You know, anything that we could and a few snippets that we were able to locate of David uh, in performance. Now, keep in mind, I didn't record David in performance. If you listen to the documentary I did of him that's already on the radio, we weren't licensed to record the music. This gets really technical about who owns the right to the music. Right. Um, is it the person that taped the music? Is it the person that wrote the song? Is it the record company that released the record? You know, you, you, you could spend um, years sending lawyers, 
children through college. Mm-hmm. So the, the documentary that I used, you will note, has no music. It just has hysteria and screaming, which, of course, was the way most Cassidy concerts were. And when I was with David in uh, Manchester in London, I could barely hear him sing. All I could hear were uh, the girls screaming. So you'll see a very, very few snippets. But for fans who would like to go on this experience and say, well, it wasn't bad. I mean, we, we liked hearing David, but we wish Elliot would have played David singing in concert and in performance and David at home with an acoustic guitar um, and David's uh, demos, his personal. I don't own any of those. I don't have any of those and I don't have the right to air them. Okay. So well, that's why they're not there. Let me um, just ask you a couple of questions that I know have been on the minds of fans. Um, one is, is um, why did you wait until now to release these tapes? Did you simply forget about them, or was there another reason? It's not that I forgot about them. Again, keep in mind, I've interviewed over 2,000 people. When you do the interviews, in most cases, you, there's a certain part that you use on radio and TV. And then the rest of it just remains on a reel somewhere. And I had hundreds and hundreds of reels of tape. I mean, in my last little place that I lived in, I, would take it, I took out the glasses and the dishes in the kitchen to make room on the shelves, the tapes that I was collecting from years of doing this kind of work. There came a point where I took all the cassettes, transferred them to reel-to-reel seven-inch tapes. And there were hundreds of seven-inch tapes that took up the entire little house. I took the seven-inch tapes and placed them on eight-hour VHS tapes that would occupy less space. But then I took the VHS tapes and placed them in storage. And there were just hundreds of them. I did. It's not that well, I what, what, them. I what was that the... there were always there, but nobody ever asked about them until A&E did because I'd never mentioned to anybody anything about the tapes. And let me tell you, I have other collections of tapes from interviews that I've done with other public figures, uh, including some that are 10 or 15 hours long. I'm hesitant to tell you what the names are <laughs> because tomorrow I'm going to start hearing from those people who love those people saying, why won't you put those up or write a book about them? Right. And I can't, I can't do it. The reason that they're coming out now is simple. A&E mentioned, or I mentioned to A&E that we went to Hawaii and we did some recording. That began the conversation The rest was David's very, very uh, 
But, what was the, the intention when they were recorded was for them to tell David's story. So when did David think that they were going to be released? Well, th- that's interesting, and that's valid. There came a time, they recorded the tapes, transcribed the tapes, secured the tapes. And I wanted, I did at some point want to explore uh, whether there were any book publishers that were interested in the subject. And once when I uh, was in New York to do some other work, uh, I had contacted one or two publishing houses and asked if the subject would interest them. Around that time, I got a call from a representative. Now, I, I don't know the name of the person I can recall. This was 20 years ago or more. And that person who represented that owned the publishing company. Somebody said, look, David is planning on releasing his own autobiography. He wrote an autobiography. He made a deal with us. And we plan on publishing it within a matter of months. He or someone mentioned that we had worked on a biography together we are asking you not to publish anything ahead of David's biography, because obviously it would interfere with the sales of David's book. It would be a conflict, it would be confusing. And David wanted to uh, advance his story his own way. That was the telephone call. I took it. I, I, I remember taking it at the Plaza Hotel. Just checked, I had just gotten off the plane. I had driven uh, to the hotel to do other work in New York. I I didn't have a chance to unpack my bag when the phone rang. And uh, I had the five-minute talk with this gentleman, very very pleasant guy, who explained the circumstances. I can tell you initially, I was surprised. I didn't know that David had worked on another autobiography. Nobody had ever told me about that. This was one, obviously, that I was not involved with. And he elected to go in his own route with it. That's fine. This is a free country. It's his life. He he should choose how he wants to. I mean, he was trying his darn best to tell his story. All right. And I said to the boys, uh, the boys on the phone, of course, of course, I wouldn't dream of, inter- of interfering with David's publication. So whenever it comes out, uh, you know, just I wish him well with it. And I hope he sells a lot of books and I hope he tells the tale. And I'm not going to uh, release or do anything. The uh, tapes remain in the vault. David's biography came out. Uh, it sold, and the subject did not come up again until eighty. Right. Okay. So, um, I, I presume um, now, just for the the sake of the listener, this uh, interview is being recorded um, before the David tapes have been released, 
And so I have not had a chance to listen to them, but I presume, Elliot, that you have spent quite a bit of time listening to them. Um, what, what are your impressions? What do you come away with after having these memories opened up again after all these decades? It hasn't been easy. It hasn't been easy. I have to admit that, uh, you know, the truth is I never should have opened my mouth to A&E about the fact that they were still there because it set into motion months, months now of having to listen to each and every single hour of tape. Uh, go line by line over these hundreds of pages of transcript. And again, some of it is inaudible. Some of it is very hard to hear. The transcriber would leave, you know, it looked like redacted pages from the Pentagon because the, the transcriber couldn't tell what we're talking about because the external noise, etc. But there was enough there for me to get a kind of a composite view of all the subjects we talked about, which were a lot. And there were enough hours where I really heard David telling his tale. My effort here, as was my effort in Hawaii, was to ask a question, shut up, get out of the way, and let David speak. So all David ever wanted in which relationship to the media, he wanted to be able to tell his own story. He didn't want other people to tell his story, describe his story, describe who he was, describe the life he He wanted to tell people what it was. So as I was listening to the tapes, I noted that I did give him all the time in the world. David and I knew each other well. He liked talk. He's a very articulate guy. He expresses himself very clearly. And sometimes there were, I would ask a question and he would talk for 45 minutes in terms of the answer. When he would drift too far away from the subject matter, I would try and bring him back a little bit closer because I wanted to get more color from him. I would, he and I had discussed some of these things before, but the listener was unaware of it. So in one of the segments of the uh, unreleased tapes, where I asked him how it all began, I asked him to recall for me, from his point of view, what his first concert was like. What was it like the first time he stepped out uh, on an auditorium stage and sang before thousands of people. And he describes it in great, and I think your listeners are going to find very surprising detail. He is going to, without giving it away, tell you how completely unprepared he was for that event. That he had no idea what he was going to do, <laughs> what he was going to sing, he had no band. He didn't know what he was going to wear. He had never done a performance in front of more than four people. It was, and it was, he was notified about this two weeks before. And we follow him to this first 
concert and what it felt like to him. So during the course of that, which I found really interesting, if, if I were interviewing Nick Jagger, I would have wanted Nick to tell us the same story of the first time he healed the Rolling Stones appearing before people. It's a question that I have posed to John Lennon and Ringo Starr and, and, and to others. People find that really intriguing. But as David's telling the story, he would sometimes drift uh, into different subjects. And you might hear me saying, now let's get back to the first concert, okay? Where I put him back on track. Mm-hmm. But you'll hear relatively little of me uh, interrupting him or... I just want him to stay with the tale he was telling in a way that the listener could listen. And that that is one of the segments, and that is the way I try to handle all of it. There were other subjects that were more personal, that were more sensitive, where I may have asked him you know, to clarify some of the people he was speaking about. Well, did you come away with with any enlightenment about who David was? I mean, did it did it seem fresh to you again? Did you look at it with the the benefit of hindsight and find any of it ironic or touching in any particular way? It's it's a very very good question. That's a very good question, and I did. Because don't forget back then, and how old am I, 30 years old at that time, Mm -hmm. give or take, I can't do the math right now, David Younger, Um, I I had no idea, he could not possibly have known how life would evolve, what would happen to him, so I took everything that he said to me as being truthful uh, and accurate. As time went by, I realized that it's not that he was being dishonest with me, but I don't think he was completely in touch with everything. I found the most emotional parts for me when he was talking about Madison Square Garden, which I just assumed that any entertainer in the world who would have the honor of performing at Madison Square Garden in New York City, that that would be the ultimate experience, the penultimate experience in their lives. And in walking through Madison Square Garden, the time that he spent with his grandfather in New York during that time, and what the experience was like, was very, very different than the way most people would have perceived it to be. It is it is not depicted as being as joyous as one would expect. And what he did immediately after the show, people, I think people will find that intriguing. Uh, we talk about women talk about women without naming them. Mm-hmm. I, want to be, I want to be made perfectly clear that during the course of this exercise, 
one of the things that uh, I promised myself was, look, I'm not, uh, 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 David, I'm not a reporter. I'm not a journalist. Uh, I was his friend. I loved him. It never was. It never is. It never will be my intention to embarrass him or to insult him or to violate private confidences. Everything that you're hearing, he spoke to us because he wanted to be heard. Now, things that he expressed to me over the years in private, that sticks with me. And just that kind of guy. I know he's passed. I know he can't be hurt anymore. Uh, but uh, I, I just believe that in that old school, no where the line is drawn between a personal statement and a public statement. But while we're talking about money, if a name was mentioned, I removed that name. Yeah. I didn't want to create any uh, issue with women he might have been involved with or anything of that kind. Um, and he refers to one particular woman, not by her name, but by the city that she came from. And upon listening to it, you see, the fact is, whenever people ask me about David, and they say, we understand at the end what killed him was organ failure, liver failure, and we know the, medic, the medical reasons behind his death. But what was the stuff that was so painful that he needed to cover it up with um, you know, too much alcohol. And why was he so sad? Why would a guy who had the world, who had everything, be so unhappy? That's the most frequent question that I could ask when people ask me about David. And it's a question that I don't have the answer to. I mean, he was a fairly unhappy person in the very beginning when I met him. But I met him during the time that uh, all the Partridge stuff was being uh, created and issues with fans and pressure and the rest of it. But, of course, when you talk to a man about issues that may have caused emotional pain, when you talk to a woman about the same subject, it frequently has to do with a member of the opposite gender. There was a woman that he, um, I don't know, I don't want to use the word obsessed about, but referenced a lot. A woman who he really cared about. And it's uh, not, no name is given. I don't know her name. He only referred to uh, her with me privately and publicly by the city and he talks about her in a very loving and longing way um, she never went the distance with him I think that fans who might not be aware of this might find that intriguing This, so this is someone who we don't 
who hasn't been publicly spoken of or um correct 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 and would this have would this woman have been uh prior to his marriages I'm going to let you listen to the tapes. <laughs> the, answer, the, the answer is yes. We're not talking about infidelity here. Yeah. It's, somebody he, it's somebody he met at a very, very young age who left an indelible impression who would reoccur at different points in his life or the moments that he first shared with her. But uh, he's very candid in talking about his first feelings about her. I found that emotional emotional and of course we do everything uh, possible to disguise her identity so she, she could maintain her practice in wherever and whoever she is i mean you can press me on this much as you want i don't know who she is okay but uh i think that you would find that uh intriguing um the other thing that did surprise me at the time because there is a segment where we talk about uh, drugs, of course. And um, David wanted to discuss, um, specifically, he wanted to discuss psychedelics, which he found uh, intriguing and did some experimentation with and uh, described the experiences mostly in a favorable way. But after we get through discussing um, psychedelics and he also indicates that uh, drugs for the most part played a very very small role in David's life he was not a pill popper he made it very clear he hardly ever took a sleeping pill um, he'll talk to you about what he took for how long and for what purpose mm-hmm but at the conclusion of our conversation about drugs, I just mentioned in passing, about alcohol. Did you have any uh, issue with alcohol? And at the time, uh, and you'll hear it on the tape, whereas he acknowledged he liked to occasionally uh, get a little high and go out and have drinks, he played it down and made it seem as if drinking was never uh, really a, a major issue with him. Uh, I asked him to talk about his dad and his dad's relationship to drinking. And he described that as well. But he made drinking appear to be about um, <clears throat> his relationship with his father. Um, 
that always seemed to be a huge source of pain for him. And specifically, I mean, we all know that there there was this jealousy that Jack Cassidy had over David's success. Um, so, so that is well known. Um, but um, I'm I'm wondering the extent to which he was parented, um, because when I look at his life at, at 20 years old, and he's this international superstar, you know, the highest paid performer, you know, pulling in um, tens of thousands of dollars in, in one night for a concert. Um, and I never read anything in his autobiography about his parents having any input or control or oversight over how his money was being handled. And, you know, we know that he went on to to lose it after making something like $8 million in a matter of a few years and then losing it in about the same amount of time. Um, It just seems to me that maybe there was some neglect there. Would that be fair? I don't think so. I'll I'll tell you why. Um, And and we'll come at it from the the three or four points you raised. Uh, He was over 21. He would decide how he would want to spend his money. His parents would have no legal input whatsoever unless he was you know, out of control requiring a conservatorship something of that nature uh, David did but David chose to do we don't know what his parents said uh, maybe you should hold back a little here or a little there uh, maybe they did and maybe when people make a whole bunch of money at a young age uh, they get a little uh, reckless with it one of David's passions was the horses. He loved horses. I mean, he lived in Bohemian horses. Not to just blindly go to a track and bet on them, but he was interested in the breeding and training of horses. Do you want to find the two ways of losing money fastest? <laughs> develop a real interest in collecting art or try and go into the horse breeding business. You'd be absolutely surprised how quickly money can disappear. So in what was... Painting and on one, and on one horse. I'm not saying that's how David lost all of his money. Yeah. I'm just saying that to blame his parents for the way a child spends their money I think is an unfair shot. Secondly, and this might come as a surprise to your listeners, in listening to all of the hours that we recorded, in reading the transcript, I never came across any criticism of his father. Really? I never I never came across any moment where David Um, spoke negatively 
about his dad. Now, did David and his father have issues? Well, I've been told all these years that he he has. I, I can, you know, words. I don't engage in private revelation of private conversations. This is a simple one. In my private conversations with David over the years, I knew him. I never heard him say anything negative about his dad. So where that comes from, it might be completely true. I'm not the father confessor here. I'm not the person that he shared every secret with. And maybe he said other things to other people. But for me, I am reporting to you that that did not occur. There are moments, you'll hear them on the tapes, where I recall one specific moment where his father uh, took him to a, um, a nightclub in New York that his father left with him, where his father, uh, his father had bought him a new suit. He was young, I don't remember, 12, 13, something like that. And he observed his father uh, who was always dressed to the nines going into this club and starting to order drinks. And he continued to drink. And David reports to me in his words that he watched his dad have 13 or 14 shots of booze. And I don't remember if it was whiskey or bourbon or whatever it was, but 13 or 14 I think a shot is one or two ounces of alcohol. It's a tremendous, tremendous amount of alcohol. And that his father was able to keep it together. His father didn't fall off the chair and turn into a raging drunk. His father somehow was able to assimilate the alcohol, at least from the point of view of a very young David Cassidy. And I did ask him, when you observed that, how did you view it? Did you feel sorry for your father? Did you respect him, that he was the kind of man who could handle his booze? What was your reaction to first seeing that? He answers the question in great detail, but without criticizing his father. He goes into detail about the fact that David came from a very long line of drinkers. Now, the psychiatric-minded among us might say that maybe if you believe that your whole family can drink and handle drink, that you can as well. I would assume that there are other children who, and I know people who don't drink, and when I ask them why they don't, they say because they saw... Uh, what drink did to their parents. So, drink is discussed, his, his relationship to his father is discussed, but among all those who say that David hated his father and there was always conflict between the two of them, I asked them to explain that last album that he made, the one documented by A&E, which was a homage to his dad, where he sang, wish you were here. A time where clearly he loved his father. He did not leave this world with hatred in his heart towards his dad. So 
if somebody knows something that I don't, they do. But that's what he told me. Okay. And that's what you will hear. Fair enough. Um, you, you were mentioning um, his relationship um, with a special woman. Um, and there has been a lot of uh, discussion um, among fans that there may be other children. And I realize this is a very controversial subject. Um, can you shed any light on whether or not David Cassidy may have children that have not been publicly acknowledged? I cannot shed any light on the subject. I never asked. He never volunteered. I have no personal factual reason to believe that to be true. Okay, then I will, I will leave that there. Have, have you met um, any of his wives or children? I uh, met and spent considerable time with David's first wife. We would go out socially together. She would invite me frequently to their home when they lived together, about 15 minutes from where I lived, uh, prepared meals for us, probably spent, I don't know, 20, 30 hours with her. I believe uh, sometime after the divorce, I accompanied her to some award show that uh, I was doing publicity at the time, and I think she wanted some red carpet coverage or something of that kind. Of course, we're, we're um, talking about Kay Lenz here, for those who may not yeah. know. Yes, Kay Lenz, she's an actress, uh, David's first wife, uh, an absolutely lovely person, delightful person, uh, somebody who seemed to me to be a great wife to David. When I would visit them dozens of times, they seemed to have had, a, you know, from my perspective, uh, a fabulous uh, relationship, a great time with each other. I remember her as having a great sense of humor. I remember her as being a fine actress and just a, 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 a lovely person. They had a great house that had a wishing well, I remember, in the backyard, a little bridge that you walked over the water, and at the other side was a, a real, well, as real as a wishing well can be. She was the only one that I ever, well, no, um, I believe I met his second wife, a lady named Meryl Tans, and I've had um, three or four, I think three or four telephone conversations with her. Uh, we never got to know each other uh, well at all, but I know that Meryl was very, very involved in the um, around 
I have a, only a vague memory of that. Uh, David, because this very heightened publicity, if he was going to see a young lady, it's not as if he was going to be all over town with her and in restaurants and things like that. It would just kind of create a, a circus. I don't recall him ever bringing a lady over to my house to meet me. And in the lady department, I do have to add <laughs> that we did have a rather lengthy conversation about the world of groupies. You will not hear that on these first excerpts that I'm publishing. Okay. Now, I've got to tell you, uh, if I were just your basic nickel and dime journalist, the guy who just believes if somebody tells you something and it's on the record, you print it. And that the more sex and, uh, you know, sensational stuff you put in a book or a TV show, the more it's going to sell. I listened to... Hang on one second, please. Sure. My phone's being beeped. Okay. I, I can call that person shortly. Um, it's going to beep one more time. I don't know if you hear the beeps, but no. I'm myself on the beeps. I listened to the conversation about the uh, groupies, and I read about that as well. And I have to tell you that uh, it's not the kind of stuff that I feel comfortable uh, publishing. It was a different time in America. It was at a time where, um, well, certainly people in the rock and roll profession, when they had the opportunity to engage in women who just had one thing on their mind that they wanted to do with the object of their uh, love and idolatry, pursued them. I didn't feel that there would be anything to be learned by the details. We know that that kind of thing happened a lot in, in that venue. Mm -hmm. But I don't, I don't see a reason now with the way we deal with women, uh, respect women, or attempt to treat women with the dignity that they've waited so long to earn and are still struggling, for us to go back to this kind of stuff, those kinds of references, those kinds of details, I viewed it as being tawdry, I've elected not to publish it. Now, I, I, I can hear people immediately saying, well, you know, Elliot should not hold himself up here as the arbitrator of uh, the case. And just because some of it may be offensive to him, you want to hear about it. You want to hear the details. Yeah. And to say your point of view. However, look, I don't hold myself up here as some kind of legitimate journalist. I'm, I'm a professional media consultant. And I don't hold my... I've never engaged in expose 
or tawdriness. I did 2,000 interviews. No one ever, ever complained about one of them. No one ever came back to me afterwards and said, you know, I'm really sorry I talked with you because the way you represented me was completely inaccurate and embarrassing and disturbing. I have a website. People can access it if they want it. Or go to the Elliott Mintz official YouTube channel and listen to hundreds of interviews. You'll hear people talk about very personal things, but not one of them um, wants me to remove a single sentence. I did that for them. I felt that if they had gone a little too far, because when you talk with me, um, I let people talk. But I'm not going to place people. Uh, I, I don't allow friends of mine uh, to drive drunk or to embarrass themselves or others. I don't do that. Well, it, it sounds like the words of a friend. Um, let's, let's go back a, a little bit to... Um, what what was it that made David such a superstar at that particular time? Was it just luck and timing and being in the right place? Or was he somehow phenomenally talented? And if so, what was his key talent? I address that <clears throat> to some degree in the A&E outtakes. Mm -hmm. um, in the very, very beginning, a lot of it had to do with his constituency. His constituency were, for the most part, 13, 14, 15, and 16-year-old girls. Without sounding ageist, this particular constituency is not that discriminating. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, um, the many of those fans um, have stuck with him through the years. So one would have to think that they became a little more discriminating with age. Um, was David a talented guy or... or was this all just a fluke? No, David David was a very, very talented man, extremely talented man. But that talent was never on display um, during the Partridge family years, Partridge years, or the Cassidy mania years. That talent, his abilities, his true abilities, came through in both
Right, and right. And that later, as the women, primarily women who followed David, as they grew up, David grew up, and there was a point where the talent came through. Sadly, as the real talent came through, the fan base significantly decreased. And and what, why was that? Because he, he just wasn't what people remembered? Um, it wasn't what they wanted they to hear? Or? They, today, most people would rather remember the young Elvis who sang Alan Dog than the older Elvis that sang My Way. Right. They they wanted to freeze frame Elvis as they remembered him when he was young and, of course, when they were young. So it's a certain kind of woman, a more mature and discerning woman, who now look at him. David was always uh, handsome. He was always an attractive man, of course. But in the beginning, it I believed it was primarily that. He believed it was primarily that, as well as the packaging, the marketing, uh, the constant propaganda in the teenage magazines, all the stuff you pull out to create a David, to create a Backstreet Boys, to create sync, to create the, the dozens that appeal to uh, that younger audience the difference is in the case of most of the people that i just met from that mentioned from those groups they didn't go on to mature there are exceptions like a justin timberlake of course but no uh, david david was able to transcend that but not the image that no matter how good he became and how talented he was, how serious an artist that he should have been taken for, especially around the time that he played Las Vegas and was, um, you know, he had a residency in Las Vegas and people came to see him there. I think that was the real emergence of uh, his great skills as a complete entertainer, uh, not just in the selection of the music, but everything from uh, wardrobe to choreography to movement to connection with an, uh, an audience to uh, banter and patter, etc. And just when that was falling into place, some demons tapped him on the, so- on the shoulder. So in the final year or two, that, that was no longer in place. It was a roller coaster ride. He was always, look, all of his life, he was always fighting the way it began. And you can't unring the bell. Right. He, he had a lawsuit against um, Sony Entertainment. Did he get screwed, do you think, uh, out of royalties that he was owed, did he did he get a fair deal 
looking back on things? There have been a number of people who have uh, filed lawsuits against record companies, movie studios, others believing that they did not get their fair shake of what they were entitled to. That's not new. That's been going on in, in, in Hollywood forever. And some of the most famous groups that you can think of uh, routinely sue their record label saying, where's the money from the millions of records we've sold? Um, whereas David didn't discuss specific lawsuits. He did, of course, indicate that he was completely ripped off throughout most of his life. He does mention that um, his starting salary on the Partridge family, I believe, was $650 a week. Now, now people might say, well, how could that be? The show made millions and millions of dollars. How could they pay him 650 a week? Well, back then, uh, in an untested show uh, with a new uh, artist where you didn't know if it's going to last 13 weeks or not, that was not particularly unusual. But in areas especially involving the merchandise, where did all that money go to from posters and lunch boxes and thermoses and the rest of it? Well, um, you know, part of me believes that if David had the best business managers and accountants in the world looking after him, the studios and the big boys have fancier people in more expensive suits. Even today, um, there are internationally famous artists who have been ripped off completely in a variety of complicated ways. Hmm. He, he was aware of it. He resented it. But as to the uh, legal action he took against any of it, we have discussed it, and I'm not aware of it. Did... Do you think David liked himself? It's another profound question. <laughs> he, he, he did say in the course of the interview that he was a really nice guy. Just kind of mentioned it along the way and I, I nodded my head and I said, yeah, I think you are. Uh, but it's rare when you hear somebody say that about themselves. It's usually said by others. Um, I, in just re- reading his autobiography and listening to him in various interviews, um, you know he he referred to himself as you know being a very flawed person, um, and we know that he drank. So I wonder, you know, if that was a way of escaping. Um, things about himself that he was unhappy with. Um, so I just wonder, you know, did he did he truly appreciate himself and his achievements? Um, or was he blaming himself for not uh, ever being successful in breaking through the teen idol mold? Or failing in other aspects of his life? 
I mean, you know, uh, David, David gained a lot. He had fame. He had fortune. He had women. Um, you know, he uh, was friends with the most famous entertainers. Um, you know, he, he lived a glamorous life, but he also had very deep um, valleys, um, times where he was really hard on his, down on his luck, uh, didn't have money, had failed marriages, had strained relationships by his own reporting um, with his family at various times. Um, so I, I, I just wonder if, if he was unhappy with himself. I don't, I don't really feel qualified to answer the question because in our conversations, you know, I could tell that he was lonely and I could tell he was troubled. But did he ever say to me that he was a flawed person? Did he ever uh, point to things about himself that where he would be self-critical? Um, he didn't. And... He was in denial about a lot of things, a lot of issues that were going on with him. I, I want to make one thing very clear, whereas, and I'm not a, a, a specialist or a psychologist or anything like that, where it comes to the alcohol issue, I don't uh, treat this as a matter of ridicule or scorn. Alcoholism is a disease. At the end of David's life, he took responsibility and he said that he did it to himself and he admitted uh, that it was drink that, uh, especially towards the end, that got him into the legal difficulties that he got into and the rest of it. But let us not point to that as a a personal failure or something to uh, mock or embarrass him over or uh, chastise him or cast judgment. Uh, by the time he ended his life, he had the fortitude to come to grips with that. I make a point of that during the, the this thing that we're going to post at the end of the week. And I do indicate to people that if they have the same problem or the same issues, if they hear a little bit of themselves in what they're hearing, uh, we include a contact a website for Alcoholics Anonymous just because I felt that that should be in there. I don't, uh, I, I don't think of an alcoholic as anybody uh, who's a human failure. If you were to somebody who has a disease and uh, admire those people who do what they can to get beyond it. As far as the other stuff is concerned, what about his life was flawed? Well, I'm not the kind of guy who makes those kind of lists because I can promise you for everything that somebody else has got, I could probably think of a, a, a one that Elliot Mintz has as well. And I'd rather not have others list my flaws. I'd rather try and come to grips with them myself. I believe that David did. I believe that David did his best to come to grips with some of the issues that haunted him. 
and couldn't. So at the end of the day, um, there's a lot of fans who really miss him. Um, and they really haven't found a replacement for him. I don't know that they, that we ever will in our lifetimes. Um, but as someone who knew him for so long, what would you say is the legacy that he's leaving us? Well, two things. One um, is Dan Signal. In all of our conversations, public and private, he never demeaned the fans. I mean, I know performers who couldn't care less about their fans. They just care about the money and the money that their fans bring them. Um, David had a great affection for the fans, great appreciation for them. These were, these were, for the most part, very, very young girls. He wanted to put on the best possible show that he could put on for them. He wanted to see to it that they were protected to the best degree that they were because he knew um, how things could go awry, especially in those days when we weren't all that proficient in terms of security measures and ways of preventing people from hurting themselves and the rest of it. Um, the fans meant a great deal to him. He showed he surprised fans by showing up little um, meetings when they didn't know he'd be there. He did return phone calls and uh, always did the autographs. It was very respectful of them. None of them should think they were ever taken for granted. There was a real love for them. It wasn't the fans that imprisoned David. Um, it was the fans who appreciated him. And some of them stuck with him till the end. And I'm so pleased to see that so many of them, even here as we uh, are about to uh, say hello to the year 2020, are still talking about him, that there's any interest at all in these tapes and in this person. And um, I want each one of them to take away from the experience whatever it was that you got from David. Because he touched you, he moved you, you loved him, you were affected by what he did. You loved him when you were 14 and he barely knew what he was doing up there on the stage except making you feel giddy and happy. And towards the middle, um, he reached you heart to heart. And uh, his passing was devastating to so many. And he should not be regarded or thought of only in the context of the way it ended. He should be thought of in the context in which one man tried to live his life to the best of his ability while entertaining as many as he could, making others feel great, sometimes at personal peril to himself. That David Cassidy was a damn good guy. Elliot, that is so wonderful to hear. And um, if I may, on behalf of this, the listeners that I know love David very much, we want to thank you for being his friend 
and for sharing these tapes. Um, I, I know they're going to be very meaningful to many people. So thank you for um, all the time and hard work that you've put into preserving them and sharing them with us. Very, very kind of you to say that. I, I, I do want to say just one final thing in passing. And that is to the people that I have heard from um, that don't like the idea of the tapes being published at all and uh, already fear what they may hear. Mm -hmm. First, you don't have to listen. Second, I've given you a little preview in tonight's phone conversation as to what we're about. Not all of it is pretty, uh, but it's not put there to make you feel bad. It's put there to make you have a more complete understanding of the experience. Here were my choices. I could either share them with you for free, by the way, I don't make a dollar off of any of this stuff. It's cost me tens of thousands of dollars to present them and to make them happen. Uh, I could have gone to some publisher, sold it, slapped together a book, made a couple of bucks off of it, threw in a couple of the stories about the groupies and the rest of it. Could have done that. Could have just left them in the vault until after I pass for whoever gets all the tapes and sells them as they choose, could have thrown them in the fireplace. There were a lot of options. I elected to share them with the people who cared about David for free and for them to have the option not to listen. So for those who would criticize the publishing of them, uh, tell me what option you would have presented that's the first thing. And the second thing, the only other thing is, um, I don't have any more room for Facebook friends. I have apparently used up my 5,000 uh, maximum collection. I get dozens and dozens of requests now for from Cassidy fans to be part of the Facebook thing. As people drift talking to board with me and there's more spaces open, <laughs> I'll be happy to include you. But on the YouTube channel, uh, there is a uh, you know a, a room for comments where people can speak and offer their thoughts and their feelings. I welcome people's comments. I welcome people who disagree with me. I welcome people who feel differently about David Cassidy. Um, that's all fine. We 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 can take. We have a very civil dialogue that goes on in my social media. We don't tolerate name-calling or public humiliation. If you have something of an angry, vindictive uh, nature, I'm sure you'll find a website to express it, but I don't permit those to be posted. If you have a different view of something you've heard or expressed and do so civilly, uh, I'm not asking everybody to agree with my decisions or to agree with the way David lived his life. You're entitled, if you wish, to express an opinion. And the only thing that I ask that you do is subscribe to the channel. Subscribe to it. Uh, there, there have been over a thousand people who have contacted the channel uh, to comment on David in the past three weeks. 
and about a half of them have subscribed. I ask you to do that for another reason. That beyond David, on the channel, are hundreds of conversations with other people. And it would bring me personal delight to share with you some of these other people, most of whom you know, some of whom you don't, and listen to their feelings and their reports about fame, about many of the issues that confronted David. Uh, all of my website material is all for free. There are no commercials. There are no Elliot Men's coffee cups or t-shirts. I was very fortunate uh, so far to have met all the people that I've met. It gives me delight to share them with you. Subscribe to the channel, visit it from time to time, and let me know what you think of the other people as well. Uh, that's what I would ask of you. Well, I can uh, vouch for the fact that um, Elliot is one of the most prolific um, connectors in in Hollywood and in the entertainment world. I've been following him for a while, and um, you know he he has known and represented um, some of the biggest entertainers out there. And um, some of the interviews that you will find on both his website ElliotMins.com and his uh, YouTube channel um, are just amazing. To, to me, I think you are the Forrest Gump of, uh, <laughs> of media reps. <laughs> You're just, you, you, you just show up everywhere. <laughs> I appreciate uh, that, and I appreciate you giving me this uh, opportunity to uh, give people a preview of what we hope to have up um, over the, over the uh, this coming week, weekend. If we don't make the 19th and the 20th, uh, it's uh, a four-hour block of material that might take a little while to render, and we're in the home stretch of it right now. But uh, you're, you're less than 10 days away from it, and uh, let us know what you think about it. And I, and I, and I thank you again for giving me a chance to, to talk to David's fans. Elliot, it has been a, a true pleasure. Thank you so much for sharing your perspective. We, we wish you the best. Okay. Have a happy new year. You too. Bye-bye. Suddenly she turned to me and whispered in my ear.